such a lovely, uh, warm welcome. What a great June we've had. Uh, weddings going on, lots of activities, lots of things taking place. We've been working our way through the book of uh, Romans. Uh, well, actually, the only one chapter, Romans chapter 8. And uh, looking at the theological truths that were in Romans chapter 8 that should change our lives and make an absolute difference in who we are and our Christian living. Coming to the end of this and through the summer, we will be uh, doing the minor prophets, God's voice we call in the series. So throughout the summer, of course, many people are away, people have started traveling and so on. We're going to take a minor prophet and explain it, unpack it, give its message, what it's about, and and explain all about the minor prophets. What's the difference between the minor prophet and a major prophet, you may ask? Uh, Size in the book, actually. The the minor prophets are small, and the major prophets are long. Uh, But they all have themes. So over the uh, eight, nine weeks... We're going to take some minor prophets and unpack them, explain them, get the message out there and what they're about and how they relate to us today as church. But what I want to do this morning as I come to the end of the Romans teaching, next weekend uh, Russ Wilson will be preaching uh, and I'm going to Watson to uh, meet the children's team and the youth team and to see all the ministry that has been going on in, in Watson. I'm not, I'm not driving, um, thankfully. Um, it's a long way, three days. But I'm going to visit them and looking forward to that time. So uh, really for me, this is our final offering in terms of Romans 8 and verse 28. I want to talk to you as we finish about... Five incredible verbs in this passage. And then four amazing questions. So we're going to truck through it and think about the, the uh, scriptures here. And, and so let's start here. And we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Preached on that last week, took the whole service for that verse, reminding us that, 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 that God has a plan and God is at work and he's working all things together for those that love Christ. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among the brothers and the sisters. In these next two verses, there are five incredible verbs that Paul introduces to try and bring this picture together at the end of our, of our chapter. He, 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 he talks about this sense, it's called, it's a chain of five words that link together, that explain our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with God that should make an incredible difference in our lives. The first verb he mentions here is for new. What does the word for new mean? The word for new here means it's not, as we might think, meaning foresight, that God had foresight for us. No. What it means is that God is watching out for us. 
is that God has always been watching out for us. That he looks down on us and he watches out for us. That he is caring for us. That he loves us. That he is with us. That he is devoted to us. That the very sense that God foreknew is one who watches over his people. As it talks in Amos, one of the minor prophets. The Lord God watches over his people. And the knowledge that Paul wants to communicate to us at the end of this great passage that mentions the work of the Holy Spirit 21 times is that we must never forget that God is watching over us. Even in our our state of our sinfulness, even in our failings, even when we did not know him, God is watching over us with loving, caring, devoted eyes. sees you. He saw me before I even discovered Christ in my selfishness, in my anger, in my dependency, in all the things that in my messed up, sinful, broken life. Jesus Christ saw me. He loved me. He foreknew. God the Father looks down on us. And Paul says, listen, let you realize this. I see you in your brokenness and I foreknew you and I can see what you can become. It's like Lazarus in the tomb. He is dead in the tomb. He is wrapped in those clothes. He is, the grave has been closed up and yet Jesus as he wept saw what Lazarus could come be and he went to that tomb and he called him out of death and gave him glorious life. And he sees me, he loves me, he cares for me and the next verb is he predestined. Predestination. What does this mean? Many of you know it as a theological term for predestination, for, for God's sovereignty, for God's, uh, we often talk about Calvinism. We talk about this idea, but the very nature of what Paul's communicating is God's ever-gazing look of love and that God predestined you. Even before time began, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had their endless divine dance in a place that human beings cannot even comprehend or imagine, like an ant can't comprehend how a computer works as he walks across those keys. God, what Paul is saying, in the midst of where even time and space, where we can't even imagine, God saw you. He saw you. You are in the very stardust of his heart of the universe. He saw you. And Paul's reminding the Christians... And the idea of predestination, unfortunately, in Britain, has made Christians very lazy. It's made Christians, well, uh, talking about uh, non-evangelistic. It's made them uh, become quite, quite 
sort of fatalistic in their approach to Christianity. The very fact that God saw you and knew you and loves you, is, it should drive us to pursue God like we've never pursued him before. should drive us to be on fire for God in our lives. It shouldn't create a, a mundane passivity about our faith. The fact that God the Father knew you in the very beginnings of all things should make you and I passionate about serving the Lord God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all of our soul. We should. And so we know that we are conformed into his image. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And verse 30. And those who he predestined, he also, the third verb, called. He calls you. He's moved from a past tense in the construction to the present tense. He's reminding us that God cares for us devotedly, that God knew us in the very essence of all things in his heart. And he reminds you that right now, right here, at this point in your life, you are utterly called by God. That this faith that you've received, by which we are not condemned, by which we think of things above, by which we are radically <coughs> changed by the power of Christ in our lives, that we've come out of the grave, the grave clothes have fallen off, and we've received a sense that Christ knows us and God sees us. Now we have to embark upon the calling that God has for us, that every one of us has a distinct calling to fulfill within our lives. He looks at us and says, I found you, you didn't find me, and I have a job for you to do. So stop being (laughs) passive in that job. Know that you're part of eternity, and God has a role for you to play in that role. Your gifts, your abilities, your calling, your emphasis in your life. God called you. God saved you. Not so that we could just keep the pews warm. God called us so that we could step into our eternal purpose that God has called each one of us to do in so many beautiful and remarkable ways that he calls us right now. Think of Moses lost in his his murderous stew as he wanders around the desert with no hope, with a destiny that seems to be lost and he encounters the burning bush and God calls him to be the great liberator of Egypt. Think of Paul as as he's persecuting the Christians, as he's got all this theological knowledge, all of this um, uh, standing, all of this pharisaical um, uh, status within the community and God comes along, floors him on the ground on the road to Damascus and says, I'm going to take all of this, this religious knowledge and all of this anger and all of this 
failing and all of your murderous threats and all of your garbage and all that raw material. And I'm going to transform you into the man of God that you should be. And I have a purpose. I have a calling. And I saw you. And Paul, now I am calling you. And every one of us is exactly the same. I'm not saying you're called to evangelize Europe, although it needs evangelizing. But whatever you have, you were saved for a purpose and you must not forget that. You're called. The fourth verb is justified. He says that he called, he also justified those who he justified. What does that mean? Well, you know. Don't you get tired of hearing about court cases that go to court, then they go to another court, then they go to the Supreme Court, and you think it's going to be over, and it just seems to go on forever, and the accuser keeps accusing, and there's another court case, and it's under appeal, and then it's under this. What this word justified means, that you and I were condemned sinners, that we were bankrupt, that we were broken, that we deserved God's judgment upon us. But in the court of heaven, where there is no higher court in all of uh, the universe, in the court of heaven, Christ walked into that court and he said, I have justified them. And that, that hammer went down, bang, and declared, you are forgiven. You are loved. Your crime, your sin has gone. And the judge of heaven has declared that the price has been paid and you are free. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are justified and there is no accuser that can accuse you of anything because the court of heaven has says you are forgiven you are free now receive the life that I give you walk out the courthouse and enjoy the rest of your life because the wages of sin and death have been paid upon the cross at Calvary and so what our job is to live in The waves of God's love for our life. The waves of God's grace on our life. That when we wake up in the morning, we're reminded that God loves us. When we wake up in the morning, we're reminded that his mercy is for us. When we wake up in the morning, we're reminded that he knew me. He chose me even in a place where I could never imagine. He cared for me. He loved me. He's interested in me. That salvation is the greatest gift. And he justified me. He gave me what we call the great exchange. My unrighteousness for his righteousness. We exchanged. And I walked away clean. I walked away forgiven. I walked away with a purpose. I walked away with a destiny. And the fifth verb, glorified. We don't often talk about this. 
For those he justified, he also glorified. Most of our sermons and activities are about glorifying God. But did you realize that you and I are to be glorified? You see, I'm not... We often think about, yes, it's about us being good. No, it's about us being great. That one day, we know, I've preached on this in this series, about the glorification of the body, about our, us, the great day, when, when heaven and earth will be married together, when all things will be made new, when God and the trumpet will sound, and, and the glory of hope will arrive, and that every one of us one day will have an Easter morning when we will rise and we will live forever in the glorious knowledge that because Christ died and rose again, we too two will, will die and we will rise again and we will live forever. You're going to be glorified, he says. So don't live an unglorified life now. Live with a knowledge that God saw you, knows you, loves you. You're hidden in his heart that you are called for God to do something and use you and to make a difference in this world. And we shouldn't be passive that the court of heaven has declared forgiven, free, and that we are being changed and we will be glorified into his presence. Five words, five verbs that connect together bit by bit. They draw a pitch at the end of this. But then he asks four questions for the Christian. And these four questions are very telling about what's on Paul's mind at the end of this chapter. What then shall we say in response to these things? Well, what do you say in response to these things? I hope you say hallelujah. I hope it wakes you up. I hope you feel excited about God, that you'll actually open your Bible and have devotions. I hope you're, you're expecting that God will use you this week because he saw you before the creation of the world. Therefore, the least I can do is be on fire for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Maybe. Instead of being... Whatever I can be, and I can be miserable. I know you can't. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Question number one. Who can be against us? Since I've, I've taught you all of this, that you're not condemned, that you're spirit-filled, that you've got a new mind, that the flesh can be broken, that you can cut off things in your life, mortification, things that hold you back in your character, in your marriage, in your character and your life. You can do all of these things that we've learned from Romans 8. But right now, let me ask you a question, church. Uh, then who can be against us? Because Paul is actually saying... What Christ has achieved in our lives, nothing can be against us. Nothing. Neither demon, neither the devil, neither death, neither pain, anything that we face in life. He's saying that there are many evils and enemies in the world. But in reality, in God's economy, he is undefeatable and we are on God's side. Undefeatable. 
And we can forget that as Christians, that we are on the right side, that he has gained the victory, that the problems we are praying for, the things we are battling for, we've got to wake ourselves up, Paul is saying, and saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can defeat us? Because of Christ, nobody can be against us. God is undefeatable. And he goes on and says, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Second question, all things. How will he not give us? So who will defeat us? And how, therefore, will he not give us all things? Why does he use the phrase all things? Because God has already given the most God could ever give for you. Let me say that again. God has already given the most he could ever give for you. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, bleeding and dying. God gave his only begotten son for your salvation. He's given it all. That should humble us so much that God has given it all. <sighs> should humble us and we go, yes. So what are these all things? So what's the aim of this chapter? The aim of this chapter is that we should be so transformed into the image of Christ as sons and daughters that he has given us all the resources through incremental change in our lives, through what we call that, that process of sanctification, that I am being changed from my old man into a new man, that I'm being transformed in my character, and he has given me all the resources so that God can truly transform my inner life. He has given me all the resources. He has given me all things. You say, well, he hasn't given me all things. He hasn't answered all my prayers. No. And he hasn't given me that car I'm praying for. Okay. He hasn't given me that career I wanted. Mm -hmm. You see, you're dumbing it down to basic things. I mean, there are cars I would like if I, I'm, I've been praying for a Porsche for many years. Um, I'm just in the wrong business. And I've been praying for lots of things. Lots of earthly things. But you see, it's not talking about the all things of things in our lives. It's talking about the greatest thing a Christian can possess. And that is an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is transforming our lives and our characters into what? Into his image. There are all the resources in the kingdom of God for our lives to be utterly transformed by the power of Christ. That jealousy, that insecurity, that bitterness, that bad attitude, that selfish endeavor, all of that within me, I, there, there are enough resources to turn me into the man of God that I should be, saying. And it's all in Christ.
And I don't know about you, if you're like me, but I've devoted the whole of my life to becoming in, transformed into his image. It's easier said than done, isn't it? But he's given me all things. So I better start accessing the all things and bringing it down. Come on, look at the time. Uh, Verse, who will bring any charge against those whom he has chosen? You, there's no charge can be brought against you, a Christian. No charge. And we're all like the woman in in John chapter 8 who found herself in the arms of another man. A door was kicked down. She was grabbed out of that room, no doubt, brought onto the dusty streets as a group of misogynistic men with their religious attitudes gathered around her and mocked her and then brought her to Jesus and said she's caught in adultery. The law says, stone her, what saith you? And of course, Jesus looks down and they are condemning her. They are going to stone her. And yet he speaks, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. And they leave from the oldest to the youngest, probably because older men have a lot more sin in their own lives to see and the conviction fell on them and he looks at the woman and says where are your accusers now and she says no man accuses me now and he goes neither do I now walk free walk forgiven that you are justified you are not condemned we're all that person who has been condemned But there is no accusation, no charge that can be brought against you, that can rob you of the salvation that Christ has done in your life. So he says, let's pop back again. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? There's no charge against you. So stop charging yourself. There's no condemnation against you, so stop condemning yourself. Take sin seriously, yes. We do in this church. We talk about it. We, we are on a, a process. We believe in holiness. But that's because I want to be in the image of Jesus, not because I want to live in under a religious condemnation. I want to move forward. It is God who justifies. And then, who then is it? The one who condemns? No. Christ Jesus who died more than that. Who was raised to life at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Gives us some, of course, theology that we know about God's role. Verse 35. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Fourth question. So we've had, first question, who can defeat us? Nobody, because God is undefeatable. Second question, what resources do we have? We have everything we need to live the Christian life. Third question is, 
Who will condemn us and what lies can bind us and who can put us back into the dock as condemned people? Nobody can put us back because the supreme court of heaven has declared forgiveness and freedom for all of us. And the final climax of the the writing of this verse is who shall separate us from the love of Christ then? Oh, he's, he's working with us. Now he's going to test us. You know, in stress counseling, they often say, can you imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen? And then how would you cope with that? Paul's kind of going, now, I want to tell you something. Let me tell you some of the worst things that could possibly happen. And will those things separate you from the love of God? Because that is true depth. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword separate you from the love of God? He's not saying you are going to not experience these things. But when I have hardships, when the people are against me, when times are hard economically, when I am lacking clothing, when I'm in danger of war and persecution, which of course was the world that they lived in, will all of this problem and pain separate me from the love of God? And of course, Paul declares nothing can separate us from the love of God. Verse 36. As it is written, interesting here, he quotes Psalm 44, which is that kind of lamenting love psalm. And look at the words. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What Paul is saying is the world that we live in is dark. The world that we live in is messy. We have pain. We have hardships. Life doesn't go perfect for us. In fact, it feels like one big slaughterhouse. And we're the sheep and there's slaughter everywhere, and there's problems, and there's difficulties. But I want you to know as Christians that even in your hardships, even in the pain, even in the agony, even in the darkest hours which we all walk through, I want you to know nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You've got it sorted. Even death does not separate us from the love of God because we're here on earth and we'll be with him forever. Nothing separates us. So when you look at that problem in your life, remind yourself God's love is still with me. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We overcome We're overcomers. We get through it. How do we get through it? He's declaring this. For verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of chapter. (laughs) End of chapter. In other words, he's saying, 
you're safe. You're loved. You're there. So how do I tie this little up? I want to remind you some truths. Because what Paul is actually doing here, he is doing a statement of declaration of all that God has done. What would your life be if for the next seven days, the step you took from this sermon was every day you read out aloud, morning and evening, this statement that nothing can separate you from the love of God? How would that change your life? One thing Christians aren't very good at is declaring the truth that God has done in our lives. So what is he saying, Paul, uh, as I put a little bow on this? He's saying, God is for you. He sticks up for you. He defends you. He's looking over you. And he's with you. Secondly, he's saying... You have many needs in life. He will provide for you. He will not forsake you. You will see the manna fall from heaven. You will see that he will be with you. And that his generosity and his grace and his goodness is there for you. Thirdly, he's saying that you are... A fully loved, a fully accepted, a fully welcomed individual that lives not under condemnation, but lives in freedom as sons and daughters of the living God. He's saying that he loves you, that he's loyal to you. And that he's generous towards you. He's saying very simply that God is your father and that God is your friend. Come on. God is your father and God is your friend. Because he saw you even before the stardust was ever created. Before the first atom ever exploded. God saw you and loves you. So if you, as many of us do, often we become negative about ourselves. We become negative about our thought about God. We become We allow ourselves to go to places we shouldn't go. I want to remind you that God is for you, not against you. I want to remind you that God loves you and accepts you. And when you have a desire to go, oh God, 
I'm condemned, I'm unwelcomed, I'm unloved, I'm wretched, there's no hope for me, there's no acceptance for me. Even out of the raw materials of the garbage of my life, God can build something amazing. And nothing will separate us. Neither height nor death, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the chapter ends. So the rest is easy. Just have to go and live it. But he's given us all those resources. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that lives in our lives, that we are a people called by God. Lord, we uh, know that a deep knowledge of you, of your sovereignty, of your purposes, of the way that you view us and the way that you love us makes such a remarkable difference in our lives. And I pray that this morning as we finish that we may somehow capture the vastness of this. That you foreknew us. You predestined. You called us. You justified us. Glorified us. And we thank you this morning that there's no enemy facing us in our life this morning that God has not defeated. We thank you this morning that everything we need to live our Christian life is provided. And we thank you this morning that nobody can accuse us and drag us back into court because we are acquitted. And we thank you that nothing anywhere in the universe and the planet can separate us from the love of Christ. And I pray that this morning at the close of this time, and feel the Lord's just encouraging you on this, is He wants to affirm you of those ways of love over your life. And the Lord is present here. And then this final song, I do get a very strong sense of compelling that if you reach out to him in worship, maybe for years it's you've never, you've been distanced from him. You've been the prodigal. You have had so much internal dialogue that has stopped you from being free and negativity and pain and loss. The Lord's word to you this morning is, Why don't you reach out your hands? It's been a long time since you've actually lifted your hands in holy worship towards me and surrendered and said, Baptize me afresh in your love, Lord Jesus. Baptize me afresh in your love, Lord Jesus. Baptize me afresh in that deep sense of all that the beauty, the beautiful theology of 
that we are called, that we are victorious, that we are free. Baptize us afresh in your glorious presence, Lord, as we sing these words, wave after wave of God's assurance, of God's love reaching out to us and touching us right now. Amen.